Welcome to the Neuropedic Sports Rehab Podcast. I'm your host, Ramez Antoon, but please call me Mez. I'm a physical therapist and a strength coach. And in this show, we talk about the continuum of clinical practice to getting back to training in the gym. We focus on sustainable performance and longevity. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy our show. Before we start, if you're a sports PT interested in a virtual mentorship, make sure you stick around for after the episode. We have more details about our 12-week mentorship program that we've been getting awesome feedback from our students. Also, if you like to consume content by reading, we drop a weekly newsletter every Friday morning with free sports rehab and fitness content. So if you're interested, make sure you check out the episode description where we have a link to sign up for our weekly newsletter. All right, without further delay, let's get into today's episode. All right, everyone, before this episode starts, I just want to lay out the objective of this episode. So what I'm hoping to accomplish with this episode is I want to provide you with a cognitive framework for managing acute low back pain, specifically managing the person's environment in relationship to their triggers. That's number one. Number two, I want to help provide you with a form of categorization for low back pain to assist with self-care management or self-care education for the client to help empower them to take control of their environment and to help manage their own symptoms. Number three, I want to use the framework that I provide to help in organizing the subjective and the objective exam. A lot of times the acute low back pain patient can come in emotionally distraught, which can really throw us off. So I'm hoping that this framework that I provide can help create a anchor for us during these difficult evaluations at times. A little backdrop here, the categorization and this framework came from my training under Martin Langus at the Institute of Orthopedic Manual Therapy, which was based off of Freddie Coltenborn and Olaf Ebiens approach to manual therapy, as well as Stuart McGill's work. I finish off this episode with a case story about a patient who came in with excruciating sciatica and how this framework helped me manage this individual and help provide this individual with some insight as to why they hurt and how they can retake control of their life. Okay. Without further ado, here's the episode. I hope you enjoy. So we've all been there. We're in the clinic and a patient walks through the door in acute, agonizing low back pain. I'm talking about the patient who can barely get up from a chair, who can barely put on their socks and shoes without agonizing pain and sometimes even shooting pain down the leg. I mean, I can remember this vividly coming out of school my first full caseload with a handful of acute low back pain patients. And I literally remember having no idea what to do. I felt so overwhelmed and stuck because I kept perseverating on trying to find the perfect manual technique or the perfect exercise to prescribe to alleviate this person of their pain. I was so overwhelmed. But let's take a step back for a second and let's think to ourselves, 
if we don't look at the situation in the context of the person's environment, in other words, breaking up the case into environment and the body, or in the functional movement systems, we say we have to protect before we correct. In other words, protect the patient from the environment that they're in that could be triggering and perpetuating their low back pain. This is an empowerment model. How can we teach them to identify their own triggers and utilize those triggers to educate them on how to set up the rest of their day outside of the clinic to alleviate them of their symptoms so they feel like they're in control again. But how do we go about doing that? Well, let's think about this for a second. What do we do with an ankle sprain? Do we stretch it right away? Do we try to correct their limp? No, we teach them unloading strategies first, right? We give them a couple crutches, teach them a two-point gait pattern. Then we go from two crutches to one crutch, then to no crutches. Well, why is it any different for the spine? Why, when it comes to acute spine pain, do we immediately jump to thinking, what manual technique should I prescribe? What exercise should I give them to do at home? I'm not saying those things aren't important, but when someone's in agonizing pain, let's teach them how to take control of that pain by manipulating their environment. So we have four categories of what we call mechanical sensitivities or orthopedic sensitivities. We have load sensitivity, number one. Number two, positional sensitivity. Number three, neural tension sensitivity. And number four, sensitivity to sustained postures. So load sensitivity, we're not talking about weight here. We're just talking about the influence of gravity. How does the pain responder behave in loaded postures versus unloaded postures? So that's what we mean when we say load, sensitivity. Positional sensitivity. Well, are they sensitive to flexion or extension? Are they sensitive to rotation, which is technically just a combination of flexion and extension? And how can we identify that to help them make sense of their activities throughout the day and what makes things worse versus better? Neural tension sensitivity. Well, this is what we learn in school, the slump test and active straight leg raise. Do they have sensitivity when we put the sciatic nerve under tension? And then four, sustained postures. This is what we would learn from them from the subjective history. Uh, long car rides. It's really painful after I'm at my desk for a few hours. So these are the four categories of sensitivities that can help us go into the subjective exam or into the objective exam with some type of framework so that we don't get pulled into the whirlwind of the emotional turmoil of the patient. We have the, this category, these categories, excuse me, and this outline to formulate our questions to the patient and to organize our objective exam. So with that said, let's go into some of the subjective intake points, utilizing these four categories to help us make sense of the subjective exam. So 
I'm going to give you just a few examples of what we may ask the patient or what our intake questions consist of so that we can get a better idea of what the person's triggers are or their sensitivities going into the objective exam. Okay, so now we're in the subjective intake. We're asking certain questions like, okay, Susie, is the pain worse in the morning or in the evening by the end of the day? That question in my mind triggers, are they load sensitive? So for example, they wake up first thing in the morning, and no, I'm, I'm, I feel pretty good first thing in the morning. It's usually towards the end of the day where I feel the pain accumulating. Or I feel worse in the morning. So when someone says they feel worse in the morning, I immediately think to myself, okay, what's going on at night? I ask certain questions about the mattress, which we'll get into in a minute. But if someone's feeling good first thing in the morning, I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe this person needs a little bit more unloading throughout their day. Maybe they need a little bit more load management techniques throughout their day, which again, we'll get into later. Then the popular question of what's their preferred position or what's their positional bias? Do they prefer to sit, stand, lie down? Do they feel better when they're walking around? That can give us an idea of, again, are they load sensitive? For example, if sitting and standing are terrible, but when they go to lie down, oh my God, I feel so much better after I lie down for a few minutes, that can give us an idea of load sensitivity. Now, we can also get an idea of how load and position interact, if you will. So for example, if the person is flexion sensitive, so their positional sensitivity is flexion, and they are load sensitive, they might not love sitting at all. Sitting might be brutal, but when they're standing, it's not as bad, right? So sitting, combination of flexion sensitivity and load sensitivity, but in standing, it's more extension bias, still load, the influence of gravity is still there. The, st the spine is stacked. <clears throat> so now I can create a hypothesis in my brain about what their triggers are in relation to load and position. Now, we then can go into asking them about their triggers, asking them about their alleviating factors. So for example, their triggers, if it's a long car ride, which is a big trigger, well, that's load. That's a load sensitivity situation because if you think about it, the bumps in the road sometimes can be very irritating for a load flexion sensitive spine. That impact over time can accumulate to a pretty brutal sensitivity by the end of that car ride. Additionally, neural tension you, if you go out to people's cars and see how they're positioned in their car, a lot of people, you'd be surprised, are actually sitting in a slump test in their car. So if they got load sensitivity, if their positional sensitivity is flexion, for example, and they got some neural tension sensitivity, all three of those triggers can be accumulated in a long car ride if we don't adjust the seat appropriately. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But if you look at 
a long car ride, we can almost say this is all four sensitivities put together in a soup to make the perfect recipe for back pain if somebody is sensitive. I'm not saying that long car rides are gonna make everyone's back hurt. We're talking about someone who's already in this acute agonizing back pain. How can we utilize the four categories we talked about to make sense of why they're hurting or why the long car ride is provocative? This can really help to empower the patient in terms of giving them a reason for why they hurt. A lot of times people will come to the clinic and they've gotten no answers other than injections, medications, and being told that their imaging looks like whatever. So <clears throat> another trigger that we can talk about just as an example, going for a walk, we've, I've, had, I've had several several patients that will say to me, you know, I would actually rather sit because when I go for a walk, within five minutes, my sciatic symptoms come along. To me, I'm thinking, well, if this person has extension sensitivity and load sensitivity, well, that's a perfect recipe for triggering their pain versus sitting down where they're a little bit more flexion bias alleviates their discomfort. So if the nerve root is getting irritated because the intervertebral foramen is closing down when they're in this extension bias versus when they're sitting in a more flexion bias can alleviate the pressure on that nerve root, for example. Sleeping, okay? So we talked about the mattress a little, little while ago, but let's say somebody says that they are in pain when they wake up in the morning. I immediately think to myself, okay, what position do they like to sleep in? And how old is their mattress? Let's take somebody who is a stomach sleeper, for example, who demonstrates extension sensitivity. Stomach sleepers and extension sensitivity with an old mattress, perfect recipe for exacerbating an extension sensitive pain. I can't even explain to you how liberating it is for patients when they learn that they are extension sensitive, that their mattress is shitty, not their spine, and that their stomach sleeping habits is perpetuating their current sensitivity. You educate them on how those components are the reason why they're waking up in pain. I, I mean, I remember a patient that that was the only thing that she changed and her back pain literally went away within two weeks. And I'm talking somebody who was in pain for months with shooting sciatic symptoms every morning. We taught her how to sit, situate herself in sideline. We got her to trial sleeping a few nights on one of her uh, other mattresses in her house go to she which helped her realize that the mattress she had been sleeping in was so old and so soft that that was causing her pain versus the narrative that she had received prior was that she had degenerative disc disease and she had to live with this pain so 
understanding the four categories of sensitivities and being able to match this, these categories with the subjective report of the patient and then educating the patient on these sensitivities and why they may be hurting is extremely empowering for our patients. And it's extremely liberating for us because it takes the burden off of our shoulders to think that we have to be the magician here to come up with the manual technique or the perfect exercise routine to help alleviate this person of their sorrows and their pain. I don't know if sorrows is not the right word for that. Here's another one that comes from the subjective history. So you get a patient who comes in and you know they say that their, their pain is a little bit worse by the end of the day. They've been working all day and they come, they come home and it's not as bad, but then right before bed, their pain is the worst and they don't know why. Well, my mentor Martin would always encourage us to ask the patient to literally step-by-step step talk about their evening routine, okay? I had one, I had a few patients who would start talking about their evening routine and say, well, after dinner, me and my wife and my kids, we watch a movie together. We sit on the couch and I'm like, okay, literally show me how you're sitting on the couch. What do you do? Do you kick your legs up? Patient goes, yep, I do. Actually, I, I take the stool, I sit up on the couch and I kick my legs up and I relax. Well, if this person has neural tension sensitivity, load sensitivity, and flexion sensitivity, that's a perfect recipe for a slump, a sustained slump test for one to two hours right before bed. So when we identify that and we educate the patient on and, and, and show them the slump test at the end of the objective exam and, and show them that they're sensitive to that and show them how that resembles the position that they're in while they're sitting on the couch, you immediately get an aha moment from the patient. Another evening routine that someone will say that can typically irritate their low back pain is, oh, I like to read in bed. Okay, Susie, show me how you like reading in bed. Well, lo and behold, they're in this long sitting position up in bed before they go to sleep in a sustained neural tension situation. Again, if they are neural tension sensitive, load sensitive, and flexion sensitive, for example, that can literally perpetuate their pain right before bed, and that could be the trigger as to why they hurt at night and potentially hurt first thing in the morning. I had a couple a couple other people I can remember right off the top of my head where we changed their reading routine to be in a recliner in their bedroom versus long sitting in their chair, excuse me, long sitting in their bed, and that was the secret weapon to helping them wake up in the morning without pain. So again, having these four categories of mechanical sensitivities or orthopedic sensitivities in mind while going through the subjective intake can really help give us a framework and a an organized hypothesis going into our objective exam. All right, let's give the subjective intake a break for a second. Let's go into our objective exam.
So going into the objective exam now, we have an idea of what their positional sensitivities are maybe. Are they load sensitive? May they have some neural tension? These are just floating in our brain. So first thing we do in the objective exam, we're gonna screen basic movement patterns, right? We're gonna look at them in standing, bend forward, back bend, sitting, go into a slump, and then tilt your pelvis, exaggerate an arch. Same idea when they're lying down. So what are we doing when we're looking at all of those components in various postures is we're looking at the relationship between positional sensitivity and load sensitivity. So for example, if somebody's standing and they flex forward, ouch, and then they lay down and they go in they go into a posterior tilt or they pull their knees to their chest, flexion, but that doesn't hurt. Well, now we just identify that this person is flexion and load sensitive, but when we remove load from the picture, they aren't flexion sensitive. So their flexion sensitivity is dependent on load. So when we're educating this particular patient about going throughout their day, we want to make them particularly keen on the situations where they are flexing their spine in loaded situations. Again, load means gravity here, not um, weight. But that does indicate that we should teach them how to properly load their spine with appropriate bracing strategies when they are going to lift, push, pull, what have you. All right. Now, so we, we've identified the influence of position and load. Now we would go into some neural tension testing. So they're sitting. Conveniently, we can put them right into a slump test. Okay. We can look at the seated slump test with a flexion bias or with an extension bias. And sometimes that can actually influence how the pain behaves during the slump test. I've had several patients in the past where the full slump test in a flexion bias wasn't as painful, but then you put them into a neutral lordotic curve and you perform the slump test again and ouch, that hurts way more. Ah, so now their neural tension sensitivity is more provocative in the extension bias position. That can be a huge indication as to how we set this person up in their car, for example, if they have long commutes. In that particular case, I will tell that person to get rid of their lumbar support in their car because, yes, they may look like they're in perfect posture, but the objective exam indicates that this person has neural tension sensitivity in an ex that's exacerbated in the extension posture. So get rid of that lumbar support that's pushing you into extension for that long car ride. Allow your pelvis to posteriorly tilt and go into a flexion bias. I can't tell you how many aha moments I've seen in patients' eyes when I walk out to the car with them and we get rid of their lumbar support and they look at me and they're like, oh my God, why does that feel better? I thought that was, I thought we were supposed to be in that position. Isn't that good posture? 
There's no such thing as perfect posture. It's very dependent on the context. And I educate them that variability in posture is a lot more important. But I digress. Let's get back into the objective exam. So we looked at the seated slump test, flexion versus extension bias. Now, so we looked at the influence of flexion or extension, so positional sensitivity in relation to neural tension sensitivity. Well, now we can look at neural tension in relation to load. So the seated slump test in a stacked spine versus an active or passive straight leg raise in an unloaded spine. So now what is the relationship between neural tension and load? Do they test positive for pain or reprovoke provoking the primary clinical complaint in a seated slump, but then when you put them supine, passive and active straight leg raise, no pain. Ah, so now neural tension is dependent on load. That is going to help us educate the patient on how to set themselves up throughout the day because of the fact that they are load sensitive or the load sensitivity exacerbates neural tension. We can also look at the seated slump versus the sideline slump test. Again, looking at the influence of load on neural tension and being able to decipher the relationship between those two mechanical sensitivities. So when we have those basic findings at hand, along with the patient's subjective complaints of what, what triggers them, what alleviates them, what is their preferred postures, in the framework of the mechanical sensitivities, we now have the leverage and we now have enough ammo to educate the individual about their specific low back pain and how it relates to their activities of daily living. It is so interesting to see how many people who aren't given specific mechanical diagnoses for their back pain and how their environment is just filled with their triggers. And as Stu McGill says, no exercise program is going to land anywhere if triggers are just infiltrating their environment. So we have to remove those triggers. We have to protect before we correct. We have to look at the environment of the individual before we perseverate on correcting their body or improving their movement patterns or their mobility stability limitations. Okay, now let's get into some of the load management techniques and just patient education in regards to taking action on this information. Because one of the most frustrating things for patients is getting a quote-unquote diagnosis without actionable steps. You can't tell a patient that they have a a, a disc bulge or a degenerative disc disease, which are trash terms anyways, without a functional diagnosis that helps them actually make changes in their environment and actually feel symptoms improve because of those changes. So if someone is load sensitive, which is typically the case in these acute low back situations, let's go over a few strategies that can really help alleviate and empower the patient 
to take control of their symptoms. So we're going to keep it super simple here. Giving the patient the right to intermittently lay down throughout the day, especially if, if the patient is someone who says, I feel great in the morning, and then by the end of the day, my pain is radiating. Well, let's give this person the right to lay on the ground for one to two minutes, three to four times a day to help alleviate that load accumulation. I love using the bucket analogy with these load sensitive individuals. So I'll tell them, listen, you're, you're clearly load sensitive, okay? You know, when you were standing and you bent forward, it hurt. But when we put you on your back and you brought your knees to your chest, that's the same position. But now you're in an unloaded situation and that didn't hurt as much, which is, so your spine is telling us that it wants to unload throughout the day. So go ahead and lay down for a couple minutes a day. If you can, if you can take your laptop to the ground, do some work in an unloaded situation, that's great depending on their flexion or extension intolerance, we can suggest that they go supine with their knees bent if they're extension intolerant, so a little bit more of a flexion bias, or they go prone if they're a flexion-sensitive individual. So we put them in their positional bias, in other words, to help them unload. So really understanding their positional preference can help us guide them to the unloading strategy that um, helps alleviate some of their discomfort. Another very simple one is having a seating, a seated reclining option. So if this person works at a desk, and let's say they're just sitting in a wooden chair all day long, which is so popular, I don't know why, I have them invest in a legitimate office chair. I tell them, I want you to treat yourself like a king or queen. I want your office chair to go all the way up to your skull to support your spine. I want your office chair to be able to recline back so you can unload. I want your office chair to have armrests. I want you to literally treat yourself like a royal entity. So being able to recline all the way back, I mean, the studies have shown that just a 10 to 20% reclining can take 20 to 30% load off of the spine, maybe even more. I'm just remembering off the top of my head here. But if we, if we think about pain science and we think about the mechanoreceptors in the spine, if the mechanoreceptors are load sensitive, right? So the, the action potential threshold is very small. So not a lot of room for load before the... Um, the receptor starts firing signals up to the brain. So let's say a load-sensitive receptor is behaving or sounds like this. Then you recline them 10 or 20%, and all of a sudden that mechanoreceptor starts going... They're not firing as, as much. And so I, I, I educate the client in that regard so that they understand that these receptors in their spine have a particular preference. And if we listen to them and we feed them what they want, we can actually help desensitize the receptors just like we would do with a sprained ankle. Using that analogy is really helpful for people because everybody knows what to do with a sprained ankle, but a lot of people become clueless when they start experiencing, quote unquote, a sprained low back. Another load management technique 
traction tables. And you hear people all the time swearing by traction tables. Well, these are people that are typically extremely load sensitive. One little caveat that I'll uh, tell people before they purchase a traction table is to alter the, the traction or the unloading in terms of percentages or like, like a volume knob. You don't want to go from completely loaded to completely upside down, which is usually what a cheap traction table will do. But you want to be able to go from completely horizontal to like 10 degrees of traction, 20 degrees of retraction, and then coming back up and varying that traction load. I tell them, think of an unloading strategy or think of the traction table as prescribing medication. We want we want to fine tune the dose of traction so that it's not an abrupt on or off, but rather a, a, a graded exposure of traction. And then there's the good old fashioned self-traction strategies. Hanging from a pull-up bar. But again, we don't want to go on and off. We want to be able to have them have their feet contacting the ground while they're able to grab a pull-up bar so that they can just soften their knees and grade the traction. Or going up against the countertop and using that traction strategy. There's also traction strategies where you can have them grab a dowel, lay on the ground in a doorway, and provide some traction that way. There are various different traction strategies, but it's basically just equipping, equipping giving the giving the client these strategies and these options so that they can start taking control of their symptoms so that they don't feel like they just have to take medicine to feel in control another very simple but often overlooked and sometimes demoralized strategy is teaching people how to control their pelvis Yes, the anterior posterior pelvic tilt. We know that when someone's in acute low back pain, motor control of the lumbopelvic region is completely shot. And if somebody knows how to control their pelvis, for example, if they're extension sensitive and they don't know how to subtly posteriorly tilt, they are at a disadvantage. If they're standing in this scissored posture and they're in extension and they have no idea how to tilt their pelvis back. I can't tell you how many people I taught that technique to that immediately they look at me and they say, oh my God, that feels better. So let's not overlook the simple stuff. Let's grab some of this low-hanging fruit and teach them how to control their pelvis to manipulate their positional bias and take control of their positional sensitivity. I'll give you a quick example. At a, I'm, I'm actually managing a patient right now through telehealth who's extremely extension sensitive with shooting sciatica down his left leg. When he's cooking in the kitchen is one of, the, one of his triggers. I taught him how to soften his knees, go up against the counter with a wide base of support, and tuck his pelvis while he's cutting vegetables. And immediately... He tells me his pain is better and his radiating symptoms into his glute subsides a little bit. When you want to talk about empowering through a pelvic tilt, I mean, there's no better way to give somebody 
control than that. And then something else that I found really helpful, if somebody has access to a pool or a hot tub, the buoyancy of the water can really help with load management techniques. I've had several patients in the past, they'll tell me, you know, when I go on vacation, my back pain's totally fine. Maybe it's stress at work. Yeah, maybe you're right. But stress can come in various different forms, emotional stress and physical stress. So when someone starts talking about how stress is affecting their lower back, well, I bring up the fact that these four mechanical stressors or these four categories of mechanical stressors are versions of stress. They're mechanical stressors. So if they're on vacation and I ask them, well, what do you do on vacation? Well, we spend a lot of time in the pool. You know, we do a lot of swimming. So I typically educate them in that moment about how the pool, the hot tub, the ocean, the buoyancy of the water is a load management technique. So by accident, you're actually managing load all throughout the day while you're enjoying yourself around the water. And there's an aha moment. When they go on vacation, it's an, that's another awesome opportunity to extrapolate from them, um, to gather from them their mattress situation. So I'll ask them, well, when you were away, would you say the mattress you slept on was firmer or softer than your mattress at home? That sometimes brings up an aha moment because they haven't even thought of that. And then they'll say, oh, wow. Well, when you think of it, yeah, our hotel mattress was super comfortable. I didn't even think of that. I woke up and I didn't feel any pain. Now we can utilize that as a framework to help them shop for a new mattress if they have an old shitty mattress, for example. So those are some load management techniques, some neural tension management techniques. Well, one of the biggest ones is a long commute, so car rides. This, for me, has been huge in managing patients with flexion, load, neural tension sensitivity. So let's talk specifics about manipulating the car seat. So if we just visualize a slump test, right, the the spine is vertical, it's flexed, and the knee is extended, and usually the head comes forward, okay? That typically looks very similar to how people are positioned in their cars. Well, what we'll do is we'll bring the seat forward a little bit so that we put a little bit of a bend in their knees, okay? So take a little bit of tension off the backside of the body, off the sciatic nerve, We will slightly, because we just brought the seat forward, we're going to slightly recline the back seat just like 10 degrees. Nothing crazy. I tell the patients that we want to position you in an ideal situation to remove the triggers from the picture, but not make it so awkward that it's no longer safe to drive. So we're reclining about 10 degrees, again, to alleviate some tension off the backside. And then because we've reclined them back a little bit, Hopefully their steering wheel is adjustable so that we bring the steering wheel forward a little bit closer to them so that they don't feel like they're reaching for the steering wheel. And then finally, we angle the seat panel downward towards their feet. So if their pelvis was a ball, the ball would roll towards their feet versus the seat panel being tilted backwards where their knee is higher than their hip and if the pelvis was a ball the pelvis would roll back away from their feet by adjusting the seat panel it helps them 
create a more natural, effortless lumbo-pelvic position without trying to um, be in a good posture. It's almost like they're they're in a, a decent posture just by accident. So by adjusting those four components, we can actually help alleviate quite a bit of neural tension in the car. And again, I can't explain how many people will come back after that session and say, oh my God, the car is so much better. Like if it's not 100% better, they'll come back and say it's at least 20, 30, 50% better. And honestly, I'll take five, 10% when we're dealing with these acute low back situations. Okay. I hope all that helped. Next, what I want to do is I want to just share with you guys a case story of a very, very acute low back pain situation that came into the clinic uh, with shooting sciatic symptoms. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through the subjective history with you and explain to you what this particular patient was complaining about. Then I'm going to go through and explain the objective findings and the, the mechanical sensitivities that we identified. I will then read to you the email that I sent this individual in regards to self-care education on how we're going to manage their triggers throughout their day and their activities of daily living. And then I will go through the four, or well, I saw this person for five visits, and I will go through the um, self-care education techniques that we did on each visit, what the subjective report was, just to paint you guys a more clear picture as to how we managed this individual. Okay, so I have my notes here. So this patient, she was a female patient. Let's just call her, we'll call her Susie. I don't know why I love, uh, one of my, my, my mom's nickname is Susie at the uh, at the store she works at. So I think that's why I always go to the name Susie. So we'll say Susie. Susie came in. She was complaining of 10 out of 10 pain that she was not able to control at all. At its worst, it's seven, it was 10 out of 10. At its best, it was a 7 out of 10. So she's complaining of right sciatica. So she has pain shooting down into her right foot. It's extending into her leg. She's complaining of numbness and tingling. She gets right, right-sided sciatica. It came on overnight. She's reporting that she's in constant pain. She can't identify what triggered it. She just woke up one morning and there it was. The onset was four weeks prior to the evaluation. At the time of the evaluation, she was at nine out of 10 pain. It was intense. It was sharp. Most of the time, it was just nonstop pain. I remember this so clearly. This patient was literally in tears on the evaluation. That's how much pain she was in. She loved going to the gym. She loved bike riding. She loved doing yoga. She couldn't do any of that stuff. She was a nanny and a housekeeper. So she's her responsibility was constantly going to the store, getting groceries, cooking, cleaning, um, cleaning around the house. She was a super pleasant woman. I mean, 
you know those people where they're at the they seem to be at their lowest point and they're in agony but they're still super pleasant and they're good historians and you just think to yourself man if this is how pleasant this person is at their worst I, I can't imagine how awesome they are when they're at their best so we got into the subjective history and she identified her most aggravating triggers were getting in and out of the car getting out of the bed in the morning was agonizing and just carrying stuff so carrying groceries was brutal the only thing she could do to alleviate her pain was to lie down or take muscle relaxants actually excuse me no muscle relaxants didn't even work so that wasn't even touching her pain so it was either laying down or sitting that was alleviating for her So right away, I'm thinking to myself, okay, getting in and out of the car, is there neural tension? Because usually when people are getting in and out of the car, you know, they tuck their, they they flex their cervical spine. They have to really fold themselves to get into the car. Getting in and out of bed in the morning, I'm thinking to myself, man, do we have a really acute inflammatory process going on? Because getting out of bed in the morning is so painful. You know, usually the inflammation can accumulate overnight carrying stuff so anytime she's loaded so i'm thinking load sensitivity here she says laying down and sitting are her alleviating factors so here i'm thinking to myself hmm, maybe she's extension sensitive because sitting is is alleviating definitely some load sensitivity can't say definitely when you're in the subjective intake process but these are the thoughts that are going through my head Driving wasn't particularly painful for this person. So when I'm thinking flexion intolerant or any type of neural tension sensitivity, usually driving for me is something that I ask about. So she didn't bring that up. When I asked about it, she just kind of shrugged her shoulders and she's like, nah, driving isn't that bad. So now I'm really thinking maybe she's extension sensitive. Sleep. I always ask about sleep. Sleep was very difficult for her. She would always wake up in pain. When I asked about her mattress, her mattress was actually fairly new. It was less than five years old. Now, here's what was interesting about this patient. Even though she woke up from the pain in the middle of the night and getting out of bed was painful, she was reporting that mornings are typically better in terms of her pain compared to the evening was usually the worst. So that's the subjective history that we're working with here. Now, Going into the objective exam, we identified her positional sensitivities to be extension sensitive. She was extremely sensitive to left rotation and left side bending. Flexion was sensitive, but compared to extension, she preferred to be slightly flexed, which when we go back and look at the subjective intake, that correlates with the fact that she'd rather be sitting than standing. So that made sense to me. And then load sensitivity. She was definitely load sensitive, and we identified this load sensitivity by means of a manual traction technique. So when she was sitting in a flexed position, it brought on a little bit of discomfort, and then when we provided manual traction, ah, it alleviated her pain. Similarly, when she laid down, she was very extension sensitive, but when she went into flexion, she wasn't 
as sensitive when she was laying supine. Neural tension sensitivity. So, so far, let me just summarize. So far, we have a patient who is significantly extension sensitive compared to flexion sensitive. So flexion more than extension sensitivity, more than flexion sensitivity. Who's also demonstrating load sensitivity. And now we went into neural tension testing. So the slump test was positive on the right side. That was provoked with neck flexion. Also with only about 20 degrees of knee extension. And this was without slumping. So just in a neutral position sitting with cervical flexion provoked her symptoms and her sciatica. And then with knee extension to about 20 degrees also reproduced her primary clinical complaint of that sciatic pain. We then unloaded her and looked at a passive straight leg raise that was also positive on the right side at about 45 degrees. So when we look at the textbook version of low back pain and discogenic pain, we, I'm realizing at this point that we have a very sensitive disc on our hands with some pretty significant neural tension sensitivity. So knowing these going into the, um, into the objective, into further objective testing makes us, should make us a little bit more cautious moving forward. Now, something that made me hopeful was number one, this was, this happened about four weeks ago. So this is pretty recent episode. Okay. This is not like it's been going on for years. When I did manual muscle testing through the myotomes, she was pretty strong throughout. So no significant weakness, no drop foot. She didn't complain of any bowel or bladder incontinence. There's no, there was no sinister red flags to be, um, to warrant a referral out to a doctor. Mind you, she was already gone to a doctor at this point. When I looked at her reflex testing, nothing really significant. The Achilles reflex on the right side was diminished, but nothing really to write home about. So at the end of this objective exam, I had a functional diagnosis that read like this. This patient is experiencing extension-sensitive low back pain, independent of load, which means she was extension-sensitive in standing, in sitting, and in supine. So when I removed load from the equation, extension sensitivity was the same. Whereas she was flexion sensitive as well, but flexion sensitivity was dependent on load, which means which means she was only flexion sensitive in standing and sitting, but when we laid her down and had her posteriorly tilt, that did not hurt. Kind of interesting. She had significant right-sided right lower extremity neural tension that was that tested positive in a slump test that was provoked with neck flexion, which we know is a more of a um, significant clinical situation than having no increase in pain with neck flexion. And the seated slump test was more provoked in a extension biased position. So her neural tension was more provocative when she was in an extension bias. Okay, so that's the functional diagnosis that I had going 
into educating this patient about what we were going to do about this and what I needed her to do in terms of self-care in regards to activities of daily living to give her a sense of control again. So now I will read you my quick assessment and what I educated her on that first session during the evaluation to help give her some sense of control. So the assessment read like this, patient demonstrates multi-directional sensitivity. Extension sensitive is the primary positional sensitivity in both loaded and unloaded patterns, i.e. sit to stand and rolling in bed. She's flexion and load sensitive with significant right lower extremity neural tension sensitivity provoked by neck flexion in slump test and provoked by about 20 degrees of knee extension in the seated neutral position. Also, the passive straight leg raise was provoked her pain at about 40 degrees on the right side. Patient education, we initiated patient education using lumbopelvic awareness, teaching the patient how to bias her lumbopelvic girdle towards flexion to minimize her extension sensitivity. We taught her about bracing awareness and how to brace without lifting her rib cage. So her, her movement pattern when I asked her to brace was going into a gross extension pattern. So she would lift her rib cage every time she tried to brace. So we taught her how to do that without going into her extension sensitivity. We taught the patient basic bed mobility, how to integrate bracing with log rolling because when I asked her to demonstrate how she rolls out of bed, she actually rolled out of bed utilizing an extension-based pattern. So in other words, she was pushing her head into the table, lifting her chest, separating her pelvis and her rib cage to roll out of bed. So we taught her how to, first of all, we referenced her extension sensitivity and how that might be a reason why it hurts to get out of bed in the morning because she is moving into her positional sensitivity. So basic bed mobility training was initiated. Basic sit to stand education was initiated, teaching her how to maintain a flexion bias when she goes into sit to stand because her pattern of sit to stand was to, again, lift the rib cage, go into a gross extension pattern to come up out of the chair. So that was taught to the patient. We taught the patient how to bend at the sink to wash her face or clean dishes. Given that her activities of daily living consists of being at a sink and doing a lot of uh, kitchen work. So we taught her how to support herself on the counter with her elbows if she was bending over to wash her face or if she was going to pick up dishes out of the sink, how to brace herself with one arm on the counter to then lift whatever dishes she needs to lift with the other arm, if it's a heavy pot or pan, for example, so to give her an additional uh, form of stability. We taught her how to, so I took her into my kitchen at the time and taught her how to deal with the dishwasher while bracing using the counter. So going from standing to a reverse lunge to take a half kneeling position while one hand is bracing on the counter to remove dishes from the dishwasher, put it on the counter, then come up, then take the dishes from the counter to the cabinets. 
So breaking it up into a two-step process. We then taught her how to take on a wide stance at the countertop when she's cooking and um, cutting up vegetables. So take on a wide stance for a little bit more stability, lean up against the counter with her thighs, position her pelvis in that posterior tilt for a flexion bias. We taught her how to put on her pants because putting on pants in the morning were was difficult. Now, I did not ask the patient to take her pants off during the session, but what we did do is we took a TheraBand, we tied it up, and we taught her how to loop the TheraBand around her legs by leaning up against the wall, integrating an abdominal brace, and teaching her how to do it without excessively flexing through the spine to minimize load on the spine. We taught the patient how to get into and out of the car using the cross extension reflex to bring her right lower extremity into the car. What do I mean by that? Well, because it was painful for her to lift her right leg up into flexion, we actually asked her to push her left leg into the ground to emphasize extension on the contralateral side to make flexion on the right side easier. Basically just teaching her how to use leverage with the other leg to assist with flexion of the painful side. And then finally, when we um, taught her how to lift grocery bags off of the floor, so I put a few light weights in a bag and I taught her how to lift by packing her shoulders, bracing, keeping the rib cage down so that we can give her um, abdominals a mechanical advantage when she lifts because again her pattern when she lifted anything from the ground was a gross extension pattern so we taught her how to minimize that lifting technique throughout the entire process we or all of this education which was done in the kitchen and always referencing the patient's challenges throughout the day and then integrating these positional biases to that, if you will. One other thing that the patient was doing was she was holding her breath throughout all of this, which I don't blame her for. I mean, when you're in pain, that's the first thing you do. But to aid in her bracing pattern, we taught her how to exhale when initiating force. So when sit to stand, exhale as she initiates the sit to stand. Exhale as she initi initiates the log roll. Exhale as she initiates the lift from the ground, the dishes for example. So exhaling was something that was very um, foreign to her in regards to um, bracing and moving throughout the activities of daily living, okay? So now, <clears throat> that was the evaluation. That was the first visit. The next visit. So she came back the next time. Now, she was so acute, she basically found that, yes, some of these things helped her, but she was having a really hard time getting comfortable at night. Things were just really bad. She wasn't integrating the um, the techniques as well, which again, I don't blame her. When someone's in this much pain, learning is very difficult. 
when I tell you this person was tearful during the valuation, she had multiple episodes of just breaking down. So I'm not expecting her to retain a lot of the things that I taught her on that first visit. But she came in on the on the subsequent session. She said the previous night was so bad she couldn't get comfortable until she took high-dose anti-inflammatory. So she had to take 500 milligrams of Advil before bed in order to fall asleep. Okay, so my next session really consisted of just telling her that there are going to be good days and bad days, that this process of recovery is going to be, there's going to be ups and downs and just reassuring her that that's okay. The, the recovery process does not look like a linear line going up. There's going to be pitfalls. I also educated her that it's okay to intermittently take high-dose anti-inflammatories as long as she takes it with food and has checked in with her primary care to help manage the inflammation, the swelling that could be going on at the spine. And then I educated her on, like we talked about in the beginning of this episode, some unloading strategies. So because she is a type A you know, get everything done type person, I gave her the the right to take two to three minutes intermittently throughout the day to just unload, to lay on her back with her knees bent, so hook line position and flexion bias, and just doing some deep breathing, just giving her a chance to do that five, six times a day if she had to, and then continuously just training her on the bracing and the breathing strategies in relationship to her activities of daily living. So that first session, I did a a little bit of symptom relief techniques on the table in regards to giving her some manual traction and trying to calm her down and reassuring her of everything we just talked about while educating, but then immediately going into log rolling practice, getting out of bed, standing up, teaching her how to open and close the fridge with an anti-rotation mechanism at the spine. So teaching her how to brace and use the lats to pull a fridge door open and closed and reinforcing everything we just did on the evaluation. Learning how to move from her hips. That was session one. Essentially just reinforcement of what happened on the evaluation. Session two, she comes in. She's reporting that she's feeling really good. She had two days of almost being pain-free. But she got too excited and she did some house cleaning. She thinks she did a little bit too much and she went right back to where she was feeling before. But I emphasize that that's a really good sign that she had two days of feeling really good. So the education on that day was when you feel those days, the good days come on, be just as keen on the unloading strategies and the uh, basic movement strategies so that we don't overflow the bucket. That session, we again just re-emphasized the activities of daily living, sitting and standing, log rolling, pushing and pulling a um, fridge door open, picking up a a heavy cast iron pot from the stove to the sink and utilizing the use utilizing mimicking her activities of daily living as the actual exercise regimen 
rather than just doing um, sets and reps of certain exercises. Now, did we do sets and reps of certain exercises? Yes, just a little bit. We utilized some of McGill's big three at very low doses just to give her some awareness of um, trunk stabilization and learning how to create core tension along with breathing strategies. But the emphasis was really teaching her how to move throughout her day given her daily activities. Session three, she came in, she's saying she had a much better week Monday through Wednesday. She didn't really have much pain at all. She's feeling so much better. One of the things that she brought up that was really provocative was opening and closing a window really hurt her back. So what did we do? We went and opened and closed a window in my apartment at the time, teaching her how to integrate the lat packing mechanism, the bracing, and how to get into the optimal position to create leverage rather than putting stress into the spine. Fast forward to session four. She had a pain-free week. She was really starting to get the hang of doing things around the house and breaking up her tasks into smaller tasks. So I'll be honest, this client was very compliant. I educated this client on, for example, if she had four grocery bags to bring into the house, she took two trips instead of one trip despite her type A tendencies. I've had patients before that just would refuse to not to not do it in two trips and do it in one trip. So I will say that this case or this patient was extremely compliant and not everybody is as compliant as this. But the main point of this case here is to just tie in how having a framework of the mechanical sensitivities or the orthopedic sensitivities can really help us navigate the emotional world of acute low back pain and how debilitating it can be and how liberating it can be to realize that we don't have to be magicians in these situations. We don't have to come at this with fancy manual techniques or fancy exercise prescription. We identify the mechanical sensitivities, we highlight the orthopedic exam and the subjective intake questionnaire, utilize those components to educate the client about the mechanical sensitivities and how it relates to their activities of daily living so that we empower our patient to take control of their symptoms in this acute phase. I know from experience, acute low back pain is unbelievably debilitating. And if we can empower patients with tools to retake control of their symptoms and not feel like they have to be dependent on medication, it can be extremely liberating for these individuals. That's not to say that we can't use medication in conjunction with removing triggers from the individual's environment, but it's really important for us to realize that Addressing the environment and protecting the person from their environmental triggers is so much more important than obsessing over correcting mobility and stability limitations in the early phase of low back recovery. I hope this episode helped give you a little bit more clarity about how to manage an acute low back pain patient, where to start, with these individuals, 
and how to attack these cases with a little bit more clarity. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Before you go, if anything in this episode today confused you or if you have any questions about what I said in the episode, please feel free to email me at remez at neuropedicspt.com. I answer all my emails. I really want to help you get the most out of this content. So feel free to reach out. I am open to nerding out with any of you. Thanks again for listening. I want to let you know about our foundation's mentorship program. This is a 12-week program designed for orthopedic and sports physical therapists interested in better understanding how various motor control and neuromuscular rehab models can be integrated into any practice, making you a well-rounded therapist while improving outcomes. With the various motor control perspectives available to us today, oftentimes we can be left feeling confused, not knowing who to listen to and which course to take next. We know what it feels like to take a weekend course and feel like you have to choose between one approach or another, but it doesn't have to be that way. What if a certain depth of understanding in various models brought us some clarity, cognitive agility, and creativity into our clinical practice? That's our goal with this 12-week program. We'll dive deep into five of the foundational systems of motor control, like the reflex model and the dynamic systems model. We'll dissect each model's strengths and weaknesses to see how each model may complement one another through synergy. Here's what you'll get through this 12-week program. You'll get home study content, which will consist of PowerPoint audio lectures. You'll get one-on-one mentoring calls for an hour a week where we dissect practical case study examples from your current caseload so you can apply the content to your clients right away. We'll also have plenty of time for Q&A so you can get a deeper understanding of the home study material. Here's what you will not get from this program. We're not offering new techniques or fancy exercises, and we're not promoting new assessment or evaluation strategies. And rather than bashing other systems, we'll be taking a different approach towards motor control, an inside-out approach where we start with our why and our beliefs and values. If you're interested in learning more about this 12-week mentorship program, please email us at neuropedicspt at gmail.com. We're now offering free discovery calls so you can learn more about what we have to offer. And now, without further delay, let's dive into today's episode.